Hello, I'm Katie Derham. Welcome to Expect Better, a new podcast series from Coots, which looks at the thrills and spills of life through a wealth lens. So far in this series, we've tackled the hot topics of the F word, family, and talking money with kids, how best to donate your money for the greater good, as well as how to deal with life's curveballs, such as ill health. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the fruits of your labour and making work work for you. And I'm delighted to welcome the serial entrepreneur, Sat Verk. He first made his name in retail and then in healthcare and is now exploring a variety of green issues and community initiatives. We're going to be talking to him about that journey, what being an entrepreneur means for him. Also joining us is Hannah Buxton, Managing Director in the Coots Private Office. But before we start, I've got a question for both of you. In fact, I'm asking every guest in this series uh, this question as an icebreaker, if you like, which is, in 10 words or less, what does wealth mean to you? So, Sat, over to you first. Uh, In 10 words or less, I think, to me, it means choices, be they good or bad. Hannah, how about you? When I think about wealth, uh, I think about opportunity and I also think about responsibility. And I guess that isn't just for clients themselves, but also their families in whatever view that takes, the communities they work in and and the world at large. Thank you very much, both of you. That sets us up very nicely for the chat to come. Um, But Sat, I'm going to turn to you first. Tell us a bit about where you started and what businesses you were in when you, you know, you did so well. Well, it wasn't an aim to do well. That's the first thing. The business was almost born out of being bored in a normal nine-to-five job, as people would say. I was born in Derby in uh, 1967. My parents are from India. I've got two older siblings. And I suppose culturally, I come from a quite uh, an inner-city area in Derby. Went to Liverpool, did computer studies, actually met the, the fellow that I started off the successful business in healthcare with at Liverpool Poly. After that, I eventually ended up at Asda, who have a head office in Leeds. It was my social life at work that was more important to me than work, playing football, live for the weekend, that type of thing. I moved from Asda to another retail place that just dealt with software. And when I was uh, about 32, I think I was then, I also got the fellow that I met at Poly a job at my current place. And he was something called a software architect, which is a, a fancy name for somebody who's really into making computers do the right thing for other people. And we used to commute about six miles from still where I live now into Leeds, and it was about an hour's an hour commute on a busy day. Unfortunately, somebody threw themselves off a bridge in Leeds, and the whole of the Leeds city centre came to a standstill. So we just pulled up in the car, went to the pub, and I said to uh, this guy that I couldn't see myself doing the next thing in management, which was project management. I just didn't find it interesting, and I couldn't see why I would do this thing for the next 10, 15, 20 years when I didn't really like it. And at that stage, I think I had three kids at that stage. This guy was married to a GP. And he'd said that he'd seen the GP's software and he didn't think it was any good and he could write something a lot better, except he didn't know how to get it out there, basically. And I just thought, do you know what? I don't really know how to do that, but it sounds more fun than what I'm doing now. We could have a go at it. That was in 1998, and that's how we started. And for the next two years, or a year and a half, we went round the country pretending to be a company called the Phoenix Partnership, 
we happened to land in a, in a good place at Bradford Health Authority and we persuaded them we were a bona fide company and they had something called a health action zone for diabetes because the diabetes is quite prevalent in, in Bradford. And they wanted a piece of software writing, which was technically advanced piece of software in terms of how things worked. We'd know it today as cloud computing, as in, you know, your emails are stored in the ether somewhere. And we basically got a £40,000 contract and jacked our jobs in. Off we went and the next six years without money was a proper roller coaster ride and it was fun. But in hindsight, if you said to me, you're three kids, you were on about 28 grand a year and you had £40,000 and which was going to last you basically three months because we persuaded three other people from the same company to resign as well and start this new company with us. It was madness. Um, would, I do, would I do it again? No. There was just something at that time, at that particular time, that made it seem fun and life was worth living again just for the buzz of it. It also happened to do really well, didn't it? I mean, it, you hit on something with TPP, isn't it, your company, with that particular bit of software, didn't you? You're right, it was the software. It was, it was, the concept wasn't new. GPs had computers in the, the surgeries, but it was the nature of being able to share a GP record from one surgery to the out-of-hour centre or to another surgery to the hospital. And the good thing about it was once, once it bought into that idea, the other services all sort of had to buy into it as well for the whole thing to work. So it mushroomed a little bit. And then we were, again, we were lucky at about 2006, seven, something came along called the National Programme for IT, which was a split the country into five regions. And they basically wanted to computerise the whole thing. And we weren't in the frame, but because we existed, we had to be phased out slowly. So we were able to sign a contract with the knowledge that we were going to be replaced. But that enabled us to sign a contract that said, well, we've got four years, so you've got to make it worth our while. So they started to give us practices to put on our system in the interim. But what we figured was, you know what, the thing we've done is quite hard. I don't think these consultancies are going to be able to do it. And they weren't able to do it. From the interim solution, we became the solution. And we became really big, almost overnight. But we managed to keep the company small and stick to what we did, which was software. But uh, yeah, I've told Hannah in the past, it almost, when the money started coming in, it became almost boring and corporate and less exciting and predictable. So when you left TPP, sort of roughly how big was it, just for people listening who are interested in, in, in your business story, if you like? So in terms of company size, there were probably about 110 people, something like that. And today there's probably 200 people. It's got a huge turnover of staff. But our number that we turned over, something like 25 million, but we made a profit of about 13. And that was the thing that made people all go, you are, because turnover never really meant anything to me. It was that bottom line, how, how are you making so much profit? And it was because we were efficient in what we did. So it was big and we were probably the second biggest GP supplier when I finished, just about, and quite close to being the number one. Anna Buxton, can I bring you in at this point? Because it's so interesting hearing from Sat and his story and his uh, refreshing views on being an entrepreneur. I mean, but Hannah, you work with clients up and down the UK. It, 
Is that story familiar to you or is every entrepreneur different? I mean, I think I think every entrepreneur is is different, but there are definitely um, themes. I mean, some of what Sat was talking about, the passion, the, the seizing the moment. There's often a, a moment where it's, you know, am I going to do it, am I not? But the entrepreneur will always kind of say that that's what they're going to do. And it's because they have a vision of it, making it better. So making a product better or just doing it better and the knock-on impacts they often quite enjoy. I mean, Sat talks about some of the, the measurements that they look at in terms of how many people they employ or, or being able to build a business that's successful in the local community and actually, you know, support jobs locally and things like that, which are really important to them. So I think there are, there are things like that that are, are similar, but I think all of them, all of the stories I hear are completely different and always amazing to hear when you hear this roller coaster that people go through of, of how they've got to today um, there's always some great some great interesting stories that in, are in there are there any common traits do you think I think the main as I say the main common traits are there's always an ability to take a risk um, you know there's always that that moment that you're going to go in and resign or or from the steady job or you know take that that opportunity and as I say the passion is there whether it's there for forever or whether it's there for a particular period and it's something that's there. But there's always a passion for what's, what they're doing. I mean, Sat, do you still have an interest in that business now? No, zero. I sold all my shares to the other guy. Did you have other projects going on during that time to keep your attention? Yeah, I spent time in Eritrea because we were doing um, charitable work for something called the John Holmes Educational Trust for Eritrea that wasn't... It didn't come from me, it came from a different person who's at Leeds University, but my wife got involved in there because she stopped teaching after our fourth child. So in a sense, the wealth has enabled us to do something that she finds interesting, and I found interesting, and that support spawned another thing we're doing in Uganda as well, based around education for girls and period poverty and all this sort of stuff. So it enabled us to do other things. And from about 2017, I'd say, when eventually we shut the door behind TPP, I was able to think less and less and less about TPP and just concentrate on what's actually going on in the present. Kids are growing up, their lives are going on. There's a whole chunk of stuff to come, which is nothing to do with business. I mean, it's really interesting hearing you talk about your business and your experience of the business, because it's quite an unconventional story in many respects. You know, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs over the years and they, they've, they've perhaps had a more of a plan, if you like, whereas you seem to have sort of happened upon good fortune, good ideas, good people, bad people, you know, and it's been quite unpredictable and your attitude to it has been quite um, um, fluid, should we say? <laughs> is that fair? <laughs> you know, I mean, is there a way you could define, I guess, the secret of your success, if you like? Or is there a, a tip that you give to somebody for how to do well in business from what you've learned? I think it's that last bit where you say something like how to do well in business. There's so many implications in that because the first implication almost is how to do well financially in business, which is a fair one because if you can't do well financially, then you can't do your business. And then it gets to what do you mean by financially well and somebody would probably row back from that and go, as long as I'm happy to do my business, I'll be happy. So the tip is not to do something you don't like doing because you're never going to you're never going to enjoy it. The reason we were successful at TPP was I could talk about it all bloody day. 
I could think about it all day. The only time I never really, I'm not in a chore way, not in a, oh God, I've got to spend three hours thinking about this or the other. I just liked it. It was just something that was, it was me. The results mattered to me because they were the be all and end all. If we didn't get the result, I couldn't pay the wages. It was exciting. There's family photos of me pushing a, a pram in the Horsworth Park with, with the dog like that because I'm on the phone or I'm on the text. But I loved it. I loved it. So the tip would be, if you like doing something and it happens to be a business, you'll enjoy it regardless. And if it happens to make a load of money at the end of the day, that's great as well. If you want to do business because you want a Ferrari, then odds tell you you're going to be disappointed. You just are. You know, those are the odds. You've got a much better chance of finding something like you like doing day to day. You will be more fulfilled than if you get into a Lamborghini. Because I've got into a Lamborghini, it was all right. <laughs> That's my quote of the day so far. I've got to be honest with you. I have to say, actually, that last bit when you were talking about how you were, had the phone and the buggy and you were loving what you do, suddenly you then sounded, I could see where the passion came from, actually. Then I, then I, could, I, could, I could hear it. I mean, Sat, you've obviously got a very um, sort of sensible and level-headed view to acquisition and stuff and consumption, if you like. But do you worry about your money working for you now? I mean, you've got it sitting there in the bank. You've, you've, you, you know, how does it work for you now? Do you, do you rely on investments or do you want to put it into new projects? What's it doing? Coots invested. So we went through a process of... Coots trying to explain to me what risk-averse was, how risk-averse was I? And, I? and I remember saying that, I've no idea. Shouldn't you be asking, do you want your... 20 million quid to become 40 million quid next year. And if I said yes, then you can make the decision and go, well, you're nuts for one, right? You know, you're a huge risk taker. If I was to say, eh, not really, as long as it's worth 20 million pound next year, I'm happy with that, then, you know, I'm, I'm low risk. So they take those questions, they come up with your risk profile and they decide what investments you want to invest in. And from what I understand, government bonds, that type of stuff, you know, um, the less risky stuff, we're happy. The big thing for myself and Sean was that the investments were going into things that we agree with. So green initiatives, no armaments, every company's looked into no tobacco industry, anything that you're not against our sort of core beliefs. So, you know, like I would happily lose, not happily, but if somebody said want to do a big risky investment, if it was a green thing, I might might go and do it. But I wouldn't do it just to in something else that was to do with, you know, anything that was just consumerism, just for the sake of making a million pounds. So they they look at your profile, they look at all the companies um, that you're investing in, and it's left there basically. I don't really think about it. And you have though made a direct investment and set up this green shop, haven't you, in Leeds. So tell us just in briefly what that's all about. The reason that the green shop came about was the kids are really interested in, you know, using less plastic. But Sean was, uh, she was volunteering at a place called Seagulls in uh, Leeds, which recycle paint. And they've got a refill shop, but it's in an awful location. It's off the main road. You can't actually walk into it. So I was sat outside a coffee shop on our main street and the coffee shop opposite was basically to let and I thought that would make a really good refill shop. Something to do, let's do it. And I've really enjoyed from getting the lease in last December to, to building it. Cost, 
what somebody else would say is a, a for, small fortune. And uh, if you're saying I'm an entrepreneur, not in this case, you know, there's no way I would ever make any money on this shop. You know, it's cost me, I could have done it for a third of the cost. But what I said was, if I'm going to do it, I want to have a bit of enjoyment. I want it to give it like a London look and feel. I don't want it to be pile it high and sell it cheap. The food itself and the goods are very competitive. It's pointless making a fancy shop and then the local people not being able to afford to shop in it. So it's all organic, which which we like. Half the family here is vegetarian, so it's mostly organic food, no meat, uh, a lot of vegan stuff. And it was really, really enjoyable doing it, watching the bill process, dealing with contractors, and eventually getting it open, even during this pandemic. It's been really, really interesting. And I understand you, your children are involved in it as well, aren't they? Yeah, Lowry, she's the uh, assistant manager. She's good. I told her before um, I would sack her if she wasn't, and what her, her first job was to make sure she got in on time. And But um, what I found difficult was actually letting the shop go. It might sound daft, but I loved it. And it's taken me a few weeks just to stop going there every day and seeing how it's going. I mean, Hannah, just going back to what Sat was saying about wanting you to invest his money in in sectors and areas and causes that he and Sean believed in. I mean, are you finding that a lot of your clients are now wanting you to follow a more green agenda? I think there's a lot more interest in it at the moment. I mean, Coots started um, investing sort of ethically or, or with those kind of screens in 2010, but very much responding to clients saying, this is what I want to do, and then us doing something individually for those clients. I think when we sort of got to 2016, we as a business made the decision that actually clients don't need to sit there and say, well, I need to make a decision over whether things whether I should be investing um, ethically or I shouldn't be because I want to make money. But actually, the two are much more closely linked. So investing for the long term and investing responsibly are absolutely interlinked. And so across all of our investment propositions, we now have ESG um, screening um, because we feel that that actually fits alongside what our clients are doing and what our clients need us to do because of these long timelines that we often talk about. And I think there's a lot more interest in it now. So we're seeing clients asking, what does that mean? And what are you proactively doing? Um, And we launched our first sustainability report this year, which has been really fantastic in in unlocking and opening the door to some of that. So talking about some of the um, reductions in carbon emissions that we're targeting within the portfolio and really saying that actually... Our clients want us to be responsible with their wealth as well and make change with their wealth in the ways that SAT is doing in order to protect the the world for the future that they're they're also bringing their children and and the families and things that they care about into. I mean, on a more general level, do you feel that clients' attitudes to wealth are changing a lot at the moment? I don't think the the attitudes to wealth massively change. I think people, what people are are doing has probably been the same in terms of the things that they really care about. I think their accessibility to be able to to make the impact and see the impact is much greater. And I think our ability to talk with future generations and actually, you know, I mean, we've I, I do some meetings now with families and we've got three generations sitting around a table talking about 
charitable foundations and what they're going to do with those funds. And they're doing making those decisions together. And that's a really incredible thing to do. So I think there's a lot more because we live longer and because people are just more open and communicative. I think those things are changing. I think a lot of the the basics of I just want to make sure my family are, are well and cared for and looked after. Um, and, the, you know, the, as I say, the causes of, of what I'm interested in and the communities I work in, and I want to make sure that they're looked after, those probably haven't changed dramatically. Just how we do it and how we might think about it has changed a bit. In these podcasts, we are talking about wealth. So, Sat, I was really interested when you said that when the money started coming into TPP, that's when it got boring and it got a bit corporate and you didn't enjoy it so much. But I've got to ask you, did you like having money, though? Yes, I did, yeah. I still do. <laughs> I had the opposite feeling when the company finished and there was suddenly you got a lump sum. That felt uncomfortable because then it was like, I've got this load of money now, which I'm just going to chip away at. It's not a tap that's flowing anymore. It's just a bucket. And that felt uncomfortable. But in terms of, did I enjoy having money? Yeah, because it takes lots of simple stresses away. Like I remember... Um, when I was at Asda, ringing the bank up and asking for an overdraft, I said, and I used to make all sorts of excuses up to try and get £200. I was going, all oh, right, I, I just need £200 till the end of the month. And it's because the uh, what Asda have done is they've moved the way they're paying people from the beginning of the month to the middle of the month. I don't know why they've done it. So everything's out of it. And this bloke listened to me from the west of Liverpool for a good five minutes and he went, I think your problem is, and then he read out a load of statement lines on my thing. It was like pizza, something else I bought, something else. And it was like, yeah. And the thing was, <laughs> Sean was exactly the same as me. We lived on credit and we just moved one credit to another credit to another credit, amalgamated it. So the simple thing about money, the very, very best thing about it is those little stresses that for everybody else will add up don't add up for us. So it's the stress that's taken away. And I, and I can see it in uh, my friends. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, somebody's stressed because something's happened and it's it's like 600 quid. And I feel like going, oh, do you, do you need 600 pounds? Or oh, do you need so-and-so? Do you need... And we obviously give quite a bit of money to friends and family. But even that can slightly be problematic or stressful because there's a... You don't know what they're saying to each other. There's a, a, an equitable thing around that goes you know we went through this uh, years years back when we first got the money we we're like what are we going to do with it or well, could people pay people's mortgage off etc etc but different people have different mortgages it's, it's it's difficult but generally i'd be lying if i said yeah wealth makes a big difference to um the stress of life and it sounds like your attitude has changed a bit then over the years from being kind of you know excited by it, worried about it, stressed by it, and now it's kind of just like, well, quite grateful and quite chilled about it, really. There was a point back in about... This was before the, we exited the company where we could afford a big house, a bigger house. So we lived with myself and Sean, uh, four kids, two of which shared a bedroom and a dog in a, a terraced house just up the road here and with a yard, and it was a big bum and dog, so the only place we could actually go out was to the park. And there was a point where we had the money, and it was like, do we stay in Horsforth where we live, or do we go where everybody else goes with a big house, which is Ilkley, up the A65? 
And we drove to Oxley and we looked at the houses and I just, and I think we both said at the same time, we just don't know anybody here. And Larry, was uh, the oldest, was uh, at school then. And just I just thought I'd have hated moving when I was her age, having made all friends. And all Sean's friends were through NCT and all this. And we just thought, no, we just want to stay here. And we just bought a house around the corner, basically. And we lived in a, a small little estate. I think Hannah's been here. but So, and I think that probably rubs off, in hindsight, to the kids. Hannah, in your experience, when clients come to you, as Sat will have done, when all that money landed in his bank account after he sold his shares, um, typically what do they ask for your help with? I think when, when most clients come to us, their initial ask is almost, what do I do with the money? How do I invest the money? So it become, it, it's a very sort of one-dimensional ask, usually at that stage, because it's, it's brand new. They've finished something that they know the ins and outs of completely. And now it's a, it's a whole new world with something that um, seems straightforward, but is, isn't something that they're particularly familiar with. Um, in reality, what we, what we tend to do is, is then start to spend just some time talking about what the possibilities are going forward and what it can look like. And actually getting people to take a bit of time to invest and not, not rush things because actually there's a, you know, the, the questions we ask, there are whole plans that we're thinking about and, and we're thinking forward 20, 30, 40 years sometimes um, versus the person that's sitting in front of you who at the time is just thinking, you know, three to six months potentially, maybe a little bit longer, but it's, it's a really different place to be. I mean, and generally, is it a kind of a 50-50 split between, isn't it fantastic, I've got all this money, but... Also, isn't it unbelievably stressful? I don't really know what to do with it. Um, I think I think initially that that could be there, and I think a lot of the things that Sat's talked about already in touching on, you know, who do you help and who do you not help, and how do you help them, and and what do you do and what don't you, do? and how quickly should I do that, and and how do we structure it, and and people get very worried about, um, you know, I mean now you can virtually Google anyone's names, and and people can see what their parents' business was sold for and their friends can see what that business was sold for and that can be quite a difficult place to be. So it can be, yes, as stressful as it can be um, uh, amazing opportunity. And Sat, as a final thought, if a friend of yours turned around to you tomorrow and said, actually, you know what, I've come into a massive amount of money overnight, what advice would you give them? It would actually be probably to actually talk to somebody like Coots who, who used to it because in every other sphere of life if you were if you got something you would want to talk to somebody who'd got it that's the reason they would be talking to me you, you're talking to somebody with experience or I would advise them I wouldn't advise them I would just tell them what happened to me and if they wanted to take little bits and bats of anything that's relevant to them fair enough I was told ages ago it's like you don't know how to spend your money by somebody who didn't have any money, so that was okay. <laughs> but, you know, that person would go, why haven't you got this, why haven't you bought that, why haven't you got... If I was you, I'd have had a swimming pool and all that sort of business. So a lot of it is just... It's, there's no really telling people. They're not really going to listen to you. They're going to do whatever they're going to do at the end of the day. But I think when people are asking for advice, they're asking probably the same thing you asked right at the beginning. Just tell me about what's happened to you. And if they want to take anything away from that, they can do it. If they don't, they don't. And Hannah is looking expectantly right now at us both, Sat, because obviously what you'd then say is go and talk to your financial advisor. <laughs> so this is where somebody will say, is there anything in it for me? No, no, no. 
Hey, listen, it's great to speak to both of you. Thank you very much. And Sat, listen, thanks so much for being so candid and honest about your experience. And uh, as I say, wonderful to hear the details of your story. Hannah, thanks for all your advice as well. Thanks very much. That's serial entrepreneur Sat Verk and Hannah Buxton, a managing director in the Coots private office. And that was the penultimate episode of Expect Better. Please do rate and review, and while you're there, why not go back and listen to any episodes you may have missed in this series? Plus, if you'd like any more information on any of the topics covered today, you can email investmentqueries at coots.com. And as always, the coots.com homepage has a whole host of information about financial planning, investments, and banking. In the final episode of this series, rather aptly, we're looking to the future with Jeff Marsh, who helps coach the next generation of wealth owners, commonly referred to as Next Gen. We'll explore what makes them tick, what makes them different, and what they need to focus on above all else. We see probably more experiences of people getting it wrong than right, historically. I mean, there are whole books written about the Ford family, the Adidas family, the Gucci family, the IBM family, about how they didn't get it right. Do join us then.